Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Acts chapter 17. Also flip over and put a finger in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be back and forth on those. But first, I'd like to welcome our new members. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a new members class. Two families came and joined, and we had a great time. One of those families we're going to introduce this morning. The next family we're going to introduce next week. And I'd like to introduce the Herd family to you. Robert, Jennifer, Maddie, Sadie, Isaac, and Zeke. Uh, had a wonderful time sharing testimonies, going through the doctrine that we believe here uh, a few weeks ago. And so uh, I make a motion we receive them. Do I hear a second? All those in favor, we say I love you. All right, that is what we're called to do is love one another. So, Herd family, thank you so much. Haynes, you are coming up next, so I get ready for that. Our next uh, membership class is scheduled for September the 12th. Uh, if that works for you and you'd like to be a part of this church family, uh, you can sign up online or out in the lobby. All right, Acts chapter 17 is where we are, picking up where we left off last week. This week we're looking at biblical discipleship that turns the world upside down. Biblical discipleship that turns the world upside down. Last week, we talked about discipleship is dirty. It's dirty because we have to get involved in people's lives. And so last week, as we looked at, uh, as Paul went on his second missionary journey with Silas, they got to Philippi. When they got to Philippi, they, they got to invest in different people's lives. Now, they began to take Timothy with them, young Timothy. And so they got their hands dirty. He had to get circumcised. He was brought along. So we realized that, number one, there are people in the church that are being raised up at a very young age by godly mothers and grandmothers or godly fathers and godly grandfathers, and we're to grow them up in the Lord. They go to a place next to the water's edge, and there's a lady named Lydia sitting in a Bible study or in a prayer group. And Lydia, she represents everyone who's a seeker, everyone who sits in a pew week after week after week, who would call themselves a worshiper of God, but God had never really opened her heart to salvation, and so she comes to the Lord. Next, we see a slave girl who's enslaved not only by people for uh, personal gain, but also by a demon possession. And so they came and they freed her, and so she became part of the, the early church there in Philippi. And then lastly, the Philippian jailer, who's the guy just trying to do his job. But because of the witness of Paul and Silas, after they had been beaten and thrown into the dungeon and put in shackles, so they're in a, like a torture cha- chamber, they're worshiping God about midnight. They're singing songs of praise, and the witness of that after the shackles break in the earthquake and them not leaving, that leads this man to say, what must I do to be saved? So last week we talked about how dirty it is getting involved in people's lives. We looked at this definition from Robbie Gowdy. What is discipleship really? It's meeting someone where they are and helping them conform more fully to the truths of God revealed in Christ. Getting involved in people's lives where they are is dirty business. It's difficult business. And as we get into the chapter today, we see that discipleship turns the world upside down. Verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What a remarkable thought that as they arrive in this place of Thessalonica, which is a, a leading city in the time, it's the second largest city in Greece at the time with a population somewhere around 200,000 people. And they arrive, and they're like, look, we've heard of these people. They're turning the world upside down, and now they're here. Well, it's not Paul and Silas that are turning the world upside down. You know what's turning the world upside down? 
the gospel, Jesus. The gospel message that they're proclaiming is turning the world upside down. And the reason is, is because biblical discipleship turns the world upside down because the gospel turns people's lives upside down. Am I right? The gospel turns our world upside down. Who we were is no longer who we are. We have been turned upside down. And the thing is, is you'll never turn the world upside down with the gospel if the gospel hasn't first turned you upside down or flipped you inside out. I mean, you think about Paul. He's met on the road to Damascus. His entire world changed in an instant. It turned his world upside down. And now he goes from city to city, proclaiming a gospel that turns people's worlds upside down. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This describes how someone's world is turned upside down by the gospel. I'm no longer who I was. That's my old self. That old self is buried. I'm a new creation in Christ. We read in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is a new life, a life that has been flipped upside down. No longer are our minds on the things of this world. No, our minds are heavenly focused. We look to our life. Our life is in Christ. In Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I think my question for you this morning is, has the gospel turned your life upside down? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you're like, that was my old self? God has flipped my life inside out, upside down. I no longer look the way I used to look. I no longer talk the way I used to talk. I no longer do the things I used to do because my life is now hidden in Jesus Christ. You see, a life that's been flipped upside down by the gospel goes about talking about the gospel in such a way that it flips other people's lives upside down. We should be a church that makes disciples, that makes disciples, that makes disciples, and then we could say, God is turning the world upside down because biblical discipleship turns the world upside down because the gospel turns people's lives upside down. So, 1 Thessalonians, and then we're going to jump back to Acts 17. And I'm going to pray for us as we jump in. Gracious Lord, I love you. I thank you for the cross. I thank you that you paid the ultimate price. That you died a sinner's death though you were righteous and blameless, and you took our place so that we could have life and have it everlasting. We thank you for the gospel, the good news, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, but God, you entered into history in the flesh to pay the ultimate price. So Father, we thank you for that. We would pray, Lord, that it would capture our hearts today in such a way that it turns our world upside down, turns our community upside down, turns our homes upside down. 
God, that you would do something that creates disciples today. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, as Paul has been traveling, he's going to write back to the church in Thessalonica. And so this is what he writes. Now, when we get to Acts 17, he's not there very long. And so there's going to be a little short section, but I wanted us to see what Paul talks about in his journey to Thessalonica. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, we've already talked about this. They were beaten with rods. They were thrown into prison. They were shackled in the dungeon. They were mistreated in Philippi, treated shamefully. Yet they show up in Thessalonica with boldness. Verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day and we that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is God's word. As we look at Paul's approach to biblical discipleship that turns the world upside down, he talks about it here in Thessalonians. We're going to talk about the approach, then we're going to talk about the application of biblical discipleship. So the approach starts with a discipleship attitude. There was a different attitude. Though they were mistreated shamefully, they were bold to come and proclaim the gospel to, to them in Thessalonica. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness and our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Though they were being mistreated, though they knew that they could face more persecution, though they knew it was not going to be popular, they were willing to be bold to share the word of God with others. This was the attitude that they had. Pastor Greg Laurie says this, bold proclamation is not speaking loudly with more emotion or even with more passion. It means working through scripture, rightly dividing it, and then bringing it with unction from the Holy Spirit. The attitude of discipleship that turns the world upside down begins with an unction of the Holy Spirit, that we rightly divide God's word, that we read God's word, that we see Christ in the scriptures, and we boldly proclaim it to people who desperately need to hear it. It's an attitude in their approach. The second thing in the approach of biblical discipleship that turns the world upside down is discipleship articulation. I, I like this, verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
there's an articulation that takes place. Did you see that? It says, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. This word approved is a present tense verb. And that's, if you don't, if you don't like English, that's okay. But that's really cool, right? Because it means it's an ongoing action. They are ongoingly approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Their approval did not come from things that they did. Their ongoing approval came from Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on their behalf only. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are underneath the salvation that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, here's, I got great news for you. You are approved. You're approved. I, I know for a fact that kids and even adults are longing for approval. When we post things on social media, we instantly go back to see how many likes we get, how many comments did I get. I'm longing for approval. And I'm not, I'm not saying that in a mean way, but we are a people who long for approval. As a child, you're longing for approval from your peers. So you'll try different hairstyles. You'll try different clothing. You'll try all kinds of things because I'm longing for approval. And there are kids who grow up in homes who are longing for their parents' approval. Always trying to make the grade. Always trying to be good on the team. Always longing for their parents' approval. I got great news for you. There is a heavenly Father who has approved of you, not based on your works, not based on your actions, not based on anything that you can do, but based on his son and his son alone. You have been washed clean by the blood of the lamb and you stand approved by God. Amen? That is good stuff. Not only that, he now entrusts you with the gospel to go and tell other people. You have been approved. It's a constant state and entrusted with the good news of the gospel. This was the mindset. They were bold. They rightly divided God's word and they were ready to share it with anybody and they were Approved and entrusted. Two plus two equals, okay, I was just seeing if you knew, okay? Two plus two equals four. Approved and entrusted equals speaking. You see it right there in the verse. It says, approved, entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So we speak. And then he goes on and he says, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. The word test there is also a present, uh, is, is also a, a verb that's in the present tense, which means that God is constantly testing our heart, knowing where we stand. So we put all this together. You are approved because of Jesus Christ. You are entrusted with the good news of the gospel. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? I've entrusted you with the gospel. So we speak, and God knows your heart. This means that God knows exactly our heart state of whether or not we speak or don't speak the gospel. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless towards him. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. We can play a really good game. 
We can come in here and we can act like we've got it together, but let me tell you something. God right now knows your heart. He knows if you are wandering far from him. He knows if there's things in this world that have captured your love more than him. He knows when you are so full of him and his gospel that you can't help but proclaim it. Luke 6, 45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Lord, The Lord knows our hearts, and he knows that when our hearts are full of the gospel, we can't help but speak it. Because we've been approved, and we've been entrusted, so we speak. Out of the heart, that comes out. So, this is the approach of discipleship attitude, articulation, and here's action. There's an action that takes place, verse 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This is so, this is so wonderful. Not only are they bold because they are empowered by the Holy Spirit, not only do they show up with articulation because the mouth speaks out of the heart, but they have been so approved and entrusted they can't help but speak the gospel. They now show up, and it says that they share their lives. They share their lives with them, not just the gospel. We've heard it said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, I wrote this one down. People are more inclined to hear the gospel from you when you are more inclined to share your life with them. People are more inclined to hear the gospel from you when you are more inclined to share your life with them. Paul shows up and his approach was, I'm, I didn't come just to, just to preach at you. I came to share my life with you. There's a world out there that desperately needs to hear the good news of the gospel, to have their world turned upside down. And part of that approach is the action of sharing your life with people who desperately need to hear the good news. They need you to share your life with them. This is exactly what Jesus did, Luke 5, 27 through 32. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Jesus' approach to discipleship to turn the world upside down was actually showing that he cared. Jesus entered in the flesh, lived among sinners and tax collectors, people who didn't have their act together to show them, hey, this is the good news of the gospel, and I'm not just going to tell you what it is. I'm going to share my life with you. We're called to be disciples who make disciples, and one of the ways we do that is by the action of gentleness, sharing our lives with others. And so here's for a discipleship assimilation. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. He says we worked night and day. Now, we know Paul was a tent maker. And so as he's going around, he, 
he assimilated right into the culture. He was assimilated right into the, the city that he was a part of. He said, I'm going to work around you. I'm going to be part of your community. I'm going to get my, my hands dirty here. And you're going to see my witness. You are witnesses and God also of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards the believers. So here's what discipleship does that turns the world upside down. It doesn't just show up on Sunday. It goes Monday through Saturday into the world, into community, into workplaces, into schools, into, into neighborhoods, and works alongside people who desperately need to hear the gospel and does it with a witness of example. People are watching our witness, holy, righteous, and blameless. This tells us of three ways that people are looking at your witness They're looking at, number one, holy, your devotion to God. People know if you're devoted to God or not. They know if if your life is just wrapped up in in being in the presence of God. I long to be in the presence of God. So holiness, people who devote themselves to God. Righteousness, not only devotion to God, but in dealings with others. How you treat people. Do you treat people with honesty and integrity and righteousness? The the thing that destroys more and more people's witnesses is not that they don't claim to have devotion to God, it's that they claim to have a devotion to God and they're not dealing with people fairly. They're using people, they're cheating people, they're, they're conniving people, like they're doing all kinds of things that are wrecking the witness. Oh, you say you have a relationship with God and you treat people like that? Paul says, look, I entered into the city, and you were a witness, and so was God, of my holy devotion and my dealings with others. And the last one, blameless, in daily living. It means integrity. That when people looked at Paul's life and God was a witness, that they looked at him and they're like, I can't find anything. I can't find anything in this guy's life that goes against what he's preaching. Let me ask you, when people look at your witness and holy and righteousness and blameless, do they get to the point where they look at your life and they're like, I can't see anything. These people really love God. They really love people. Their lives are lived in a way that is a witness to God's goodness. This is discipleship that turns the world upside down, and so it finally leads to the appeal, a discipleship appeal. Verse 11, for you know like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You know. You know how we lived and how we exhorted and encouraged and charged. Now, the thing about discipleship is, is a lot of times we like to run to this, this point. We like to tell people, hey, you're doing this wrong. You need to change. And here's what the gospel says. See you later. We like to go straight to the pill. Hey, you should live your life worthy. But have we first had the attitude of boldness because of the Holy Spirit? Have we had a a gospel pouring out of our heart into where we articulate it because we've been approved and we've we've been given the gospel to share with others? Action. Are we sharing our lives with others because we love them dearly? And assimilation, have they seen our witness before we ever give them the appeal? This is a discipleship that turns the world upside down. It's one that exhorts. 
calls people to goodness, calls people to grace, calls people to Christ. It encourages them. It consoles them when they fail, when they need to repent. It comes alongside them, and it charges them to be a witness so that they can be a disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples. So we've looked at Paul's approach, and now we're going to look at Paul's application. And so we finally made it to Acts chapter 17. First thing we see is a discipleship that turns the world upside down, explains and explains the gospel with intentionality. Verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphilopolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. It was a discipleship that exclaims and explains the gospel intentionally. And the way that he did that is he went into the synagogue there in Thessalonica on three occurring Sabbaths, week after week after week, for their corporate time of worship. He went in to the gathering, so it was intentional worship. Paul's application of biblical discipleship that turned the world upside down is intentional worship. Listen, we live in a world where it's becoming less intentional to join together as the body of Christ. And of those who are called to be the body of Christ, we're saved individually, but we're saved into something that is corporate. We are the body of Christ. We're all individual members, but we are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a gathering group of people who gather together to exclaim Jesus as Lord and explain that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's exactly what Paul did here. And if we're not intentional about gathering, we will not be intentional about discipling. If we're not intentional about gathering, we won't be intentional about discipling. If we put the gathering to the wayside, then we'll put discipling others to the wayside. Hebrews says it this way, 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see the, the language there that's speaking to a plurality? Us, meet together, one another. Our Christianity is not just individually lived out, it's lived out corporately, and so we need to gather together. And so that's what Paul did, verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom. Do you think it was Paul's custom to show up every Sabbath and go, go to the synagogue? That's just what he did. He was traveling, and when he would travel, hey, it's time to go to church. Let me see if I can find a synagogue to go to. And when I get there, I'm going to tell them that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he's the one that all of the Old Testament has been pointing to. And so this is what he does. It was his custom. And it said, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Isaiah chapter 53. If you have your Bibles, just flip over there with me real quick. Now, this is going to be in your reading tomorrow. If you're going through our chronological Bible that we're going through as a, as a church, I think there's one copy left. If you don't have it, grab it because we ordered more. So if you want to join us in our chronological Bible reading for the year, you're going to hit this section of Scripture tomorrow. Starting in verse 2. 
for he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah is prophesying here, and he's prophesying that the Messiah, the Christ, would be rejected by his own people, that he would be despised. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As Paul is going through the Old Testament, Paul is so smart. He's walking through these messianic prophecies, and he's saying, look, the Christ had to suffer and die and rise again for the forgiveness of our sins. He goes to verses like this. This prophecy is that Jesus was to be the sacrifice for all sins, that all of our iniquities would be laid on him, that he would be the Passover lamb. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before the shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be silent when he was accused. As they met together in the middle of the night to do an accusation against Jesus, he stood there silent as they threw things at him, as they beat him, punched him. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, saying that he would be taken away, that he would be sentenced to die. This Christ would be sentenced to die. Verse 9, And they made his grave with a wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The prophecy of Isaiah here tells that Jesus would die a sinner's death alongside of criminals, but he would be placed in the rich man's tomb. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. The prophecy of Isaiah here says that Jesus was to be the ultimate sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. He had to die. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Not only did Jesus have to die, but he had to rise from the grave so that he could go and stand before the, next to the Father and be an intercessor for us. That we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We've all sinned. We've all gone our own way, but he has paid the penalty for us. And it was God's will for him to be crushed so that we could be found righteous. 
And now he stands at the right hand of the Father, and he intercedes for those who are his. That's the gospel. And when the gospel captures your heart, it turns your world upside down. And when he turns your world upside down, you can't help but tell others to see if their world gets turned upside down. It's discipleship that changes the world. Justin Martyr said it this way, the father of the universe willed that his Christ should, should shoulder the curses of the whole human race, fully realizing that he would raise him up again after his crucifixion and his death. Martin Luther says this, the greatness and the terror of the wrath of God against sin and that it could be appeased and a ransom affected in no other way than through the one sacrifice of the Son of God. Only his death and the shedding of his blood can make satisfaction. And we must consider also that we, by our sinfulness, had incurred that wrath of God and therefore were responsible for the offering of the Son of God upon the cross and the shedding of his blood. Martha just says, look, we have to we have to really think about this, that there was no other way for there to be an appeasement of God's wrath. It had to be his son. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. It had to be one that would die and then rise again, defeating death and showing that we have been atoned for. And if we take that seriously, that means that the curse of sin was on us and the wrath of God was on us. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a remarkable truth. What a beautiful picture of God's grace and his mercy and his love that we don't do anything, yet he loves us enough to send his son to die for us. Acts chapter 17, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous after Paul explained all these things. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the, whole, have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as a security from Jason, and the rest, they let them go. Jason and the brothers there in Thessalonica had to pay. Had to pay to get out of jail. Paul's application of biblical discipleship that turns the world upside down is intentional about worship. It's intentional about community. They were gathering together as the body. Again, over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes to them as a church, a church that meets in homes. We ask you, brothers, verse 12 through 24, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul writes to this gathering group of believers because they're an intentional community. They're a community that's intentionally reproving one another. They want to reprove one another. They want to encourage one another. They want to help one another. They're patient with one another. And they're gracious to one another. This is what an intentional community looks like. This is what church should be. Church should be not just a place that we attend, but a people that we are that reproves one another, that encourages one another, that helps one another, is patient with one another, and gracious with one another. Also, that's an intentional discipleship community that rejoices together, prays together, gives thanks together, listens to the Spirit's conviction and the Scripture's corrections together, intentionally abstains from evil and holds to what is good together. An intentional community. Second point, and this is my last point, as we get into a new place, Berea, a discipleship that turns the world upside down eagerly examines the Scriptures intently. It says in verse 10, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed, by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off to his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Next week we'll look at Paul in Athens, but the final part of the application of Paul's discipleship that turn the world upside down is intentional study. I love how it says they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see the th- if things were so. Discipleship that turns the world upside down is biblical discipleship. And biblical discipleship isn't biblical unless you open a Bible. Biblical discipleship is not discipleship unless you open a Bible. Discipleship that doesn't that doesn't turn to the scriptures for truth, doesn't turn to the the world upside down either. There's a lot of things that are being said today about feelings and emotions and cultures and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Listen to people who are passionate about the word of God, open the word of God, and let the truth of the word of God dictate the direction of their life. This was the people of Berea. They were a people who eagerly examined God's word. Let's be a people who are intentional about discipleship, who are eager to get into God's Word. We eagerly examine the Scriptures because they reveal God's holiness. They will reveal our horrible state. And most importantly, they, they reveal our only hope, Jesus Christ. Discipleship eagerly examines the Scriptures because they reveal to us who Christ is, how He saves us, redeems us, fills us, and lives in and through us for the glory of God. Apart from Christ... We have no hope. Can we pray? Gracious Father, we come to you. We thank you so much for your word.
We ask, God, that you would use us as a people that are approved by you and entrusted with the gospel to share it. God, that our mouths would speak this week, that we would be a people who are intentional about sharing the good news because it overflows from our hearts. Father, right now, if there's somebody who doesn't know you, Lord, I would pray that you open their heart to you. Father, you would turn their world upside down, that they would take away the old self and they would become a new creation with you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did what he had to do for our salvation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.